Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. It's Wednesday, January 26th, that much closer to putting, um, well, a month that we would like to put behind us, behind us. And uh, a lot of that is going to be uh, a really intriguing, <laughs> leading up to an intriguing weekend, uh, given Saturday the trucker convoy protest on Saturday. You've heard a lot about it. You're hearing a growing amount about it. But what is it? And how is it being co-opted? Or is it at all? by people and plans and concepts that the truckers really don't endorse at the end of the day. It's got a lot of layers to it. I agree it's not the most cut-and-dried topic, but we get into it out of the gate. We talk about a lot of the bad winter weather, not just the snow now, but the frigid weather. We talk about it for homeless people, and we also talk about it for pets. Yeah, two different sides of the spectrum, but things you need to know uh, if you're out there and looking to take care of your pet, and certainly the problem of homelessness in, in Toronto has never been greater. It's never been more pronounced, and it's bad in June, okay? It's bad in June when the weather is palatable. It's deadly right now, beyond the obvious. So we can't talk about those issues as well. Lots coming up. The Toronto Today podcast starts right now. Let me go to these uh, truckers. I don't know where this one's going to go. Maybe you have a better sense than me. The, the idea and the gig in part here is kind of sense- and advance things that are coming. Like we call things chases in this business. We want to chase a guest down or chase down somebody who's an expert on a topic. And you know this show. I don't want to just put nine guests on and go from interview to interview to interview because some of it's opinion, interaction with you guys while you're driving, while you're making your coffee, all that stuff, okay? Um, And it's not, you know, I don't want to put on just a bunch of talking heads like 11 talking heads every morning either, okay? We want to have interesting conversations. But And so there's short-term and long-term chases here. If you'd asked me Sunday, hey, this trucker protest, what's going on here? They're going to start up a bunch of big rigs and leave Vancouver and leave British Columbia and come towards Ottawa, and they're going to arrive in Ottawa Saturday? I'm like, yeah, I guess. Let's see what's what's going on. But there's big things happening here. We talk schools. We talk education. We're talking about still our uh, our health care. Uh, we, we're just digging out from a massive snowstorm that we gave, no pun intended, blanket coverage to last week for a good chunk of days. But I started thinking about it yesterday afternoon. I'm like, and I started reaching out to people and going, what do you think is happening here? To a person, Let's say there were five people, I think there were five, that I reached out to via text, direct message, whatever, that I, I, would, I would say have a great sense of whether something's going to get bigger, smaller, or stay the same, okay? It's almost like, you know, the porridge and the three bears. What's it going to be? Just right? Bigger? Smaller? Hotter? Colder? Where's this story going? To a person, men and women, they all said, big story. Big story Saturday, almost to the point where I'm ready to be uh, on call on Saturday. I'm not I don't want to volunteer Dave Schieber or Gord. Stuff to do. But there's no NFL football on. I did think about that. I would not do this last week. Uh <laughs> with the Bengals and uh and and Titans just drawing my attention, the Packers for but I don't know what I'm gonna do Saturday. And I'm by the way, I'm driving my wife to the aeroport uh to fly to China at three AM on Saturday. So I'll be in a great mood Saturday. Um, you know, whimpering. Uh, I, I need to whimper to somebody. I'm going to crave human interaction with somebody at some point in time that day. I think it's going to be a massive story. And I think we this is worth watching. We're going to, uh, on Friday's show, have a lot of uh, coverage from on the ground in Ottawa. What are they expecting? Where is this going? And I'll tell you the, the basics right now. This Freedom Convoy 2022, 
all these truckers are picking up and joining this. So they're in Kenora, Ontario now. They've made it to our province overnight. You might not have known it was happening that quickly, but we're talking 48 hours away, excuse me, 72 hours away from what will be a pretty significant protest. They got from B.C. to Kenora very fast. It's a big country to drive across. I've never tried it. I never want to. I never want to drive across Canada. There's planes and maybe even maybe even via rail, but I'm not driving across this country, like ever. I hope not to. Uh, I love the country. I want to go places, but I don't want to drive across it. Um, so the border requirement came into force January 15th, and Canada said all travelers, and that includes essential workers like truck drivers, you got to be fully vaccinated before crossing the border. Prior to that, you could bring a test. You could do this if it was for work. Um, if it was for leisure, you needed the vaccination anyway, right? We were all absolutely excited to do some cross-border shopping or go to a sporting event or maybe concerts would start back up again. I'll never forget in the summer, Guns N' Roses were playing Comerica Park in Michigan. And my wife was still in Japan at the time covering the Olympics for the Globe and Mail in the Summer Olympics. God, that felt like three weeks. It feels like three weeks ago now. And I'm thinking, can I get across to go see GNR? Outdoors. Couple beers. Uh, try and make sure my 15 and 13-year-old don't have any of those beers. I, they're not asking, but, I, you know, sampling is a thing. And I thought to myself, yeah, this is going to happen. And then the border didn't open. And then it didn't open Labor Day weekend. And then it didn't open the first three weeks in September. But then it did. And we started to get pretty excited. And, and that, that propelled, I think, people to go and get their shots. Um, but this is going to be interesting. And I don't know what the vibe, what the tone, what the mood in the room to make a sports analogy is going to be in Ottawa on Saturday. Is it how much anger? Get it? Like, if you're going to make that trip, you're not coming just to stand around, wave a sign, get back in your truck and go home. That said, the people I reached out to and said, are we worried about violence and about uh, an emphatic show um, and display that turns a bit chaotic. I think it's going to be, one person said to me that he thinks it's going to be chaotic, and I agree with him. I trust this guy implicitly to have a sense of, you know, security, national affairs, but he doesn't see, now he doesn't see January 6th, but I'd make the case on January 6th when you woke up on January 6th, and I did, and, and you know how keenly I follow U.S. politics. Um, that was the majority of courses I took with, for my undergrad in poli-sci were U.S.-based. I know my Canadian stuff, but U.S.-based. January 6th at 10 a.m., if you'd said to me, predict what's going to happen today, not in a million trillion years, not in a million. Now those planning it knew better. <laughs> they did. But the whole process in Canada, the last three months since the election results settled, it shows you something. We operate almost like any other democracy. It's huge autonomy for the provinces. So much of, you know, you can complain about Justin Trudeau and this and that. I'm, I, I, hear, the, I hear the complaints. I know what they are, and I'm, in, I'm with you on some of them. I wish he was this. I wish the federal government was that. I wish the system in itself was a little bit different, that there wasn't as much autonomy for the provinces themselves. This is sort of a montage. Alex Pearson played this last night. I think there's three voices here of truckers saying what they want as they come to Ottawa. Drop the mandates across the board for every single man, woman, and child across Canada. We've dealt with this for two years. You said two weeks to flatten the curve. We're two years later. We don't want them telling us what to do, right? You're supposed to run the country, but let us make our own choices when it comes to our health. 
Okay, two voices right there. Um, many of these people that will be there are fully vaccinated. That's just math. If 9 out of 10 Canadians or 8.8 out of 10 Canadians are fully vaccinated, either two or three doses. We, we don't have to quibble about that in this particular segment. But most of the people driving the trucks are vaccinated. We get that, right? Like, I think we understand that there's not some, uh, you know, and I wouldn't use this word, but others have, unwashed, unvaccinated they're not all unvaccinated coming to Ottawa. And um, to be honest, I shrug my shoulders and I go, hey, yeah, I wish I wish more people were vaccinated, but I don't have time to be impatient with those people anymore. I don't. I have a lot of time to be impatient with triple vaccinated, boosted, safe, younger people who are um, kind of coerting the conversation, coercing the conversation into that of suggesting that none of us are safe. And I don't feel that way. I feel pretty safe. I bet you feel pretty safe in doing what you do. You did what you did with the vaccinations. We discussed this earlier. Would you step up and if you forgot your mask and you were allowed to, would you go into a grocery store without one if you were if you were allowed? Yes. The vast majority of people say yes, and that's okay if you don't feel like you would. You want to run home and get your mask, your your cloth facial decoration, as, as Dr. Liana Wen on CNN called it a month ago, and I'm not sure where that messaging didn't catch on in this country. They don't do anything against Omicron. The, the very best experts are telling you that. So if it's just about upping your mask game uh, to avoid getting the virus now, you know, so you can get it later when we eventually do take masks off, fantastic. Wonderful, but I don't have a feel for this for this uh, this this convoy. I I I know it's going to be a big story, but I don't have a feel for the tone, and I don't have a feel for the pace of it. And a lot of people angry, just period, at the federal government are coming, but I don't think they understand that it's the provinces that have made that that hold the hammer when it comes to what you can do and what you can't. They run healthcare. They run education. That's been well documented. You know, over and over again, that's been documented. Let me pivot to this here. Uh, Dr. Bogosh said this yesterday, and I, I will get you some uh, relevant audio from Stephen Del Duca talking about it last night. Here's the tweet from Dr. Isaac Bogosh. Well, three v- COVID vaccine doses provides better protection than two. What's with the talk about mandating third doses with such unequal uptake? Significantly fewer third doses in racialized low-income communities. Step one, continue to support equitable vaccine rollout. Step two, see step one. <laughs> yes. What? You can jump up and down, and I don't want to yell any more than I have to, but of course, of course. What, we, are not, we are not making physical, practical efforts to go and outreach to 65-year-olds and go, you need to understand, you're not done yet. You're not done. You need that third dose compared to that second dose. What's going to prevent hospital capacity? What with all the you you can listen to all the doomsday doctors you want in the world, all the alarmists, all the COVID zero, uh, uh, you know, wackies. You can listen to all those people. The practicality is boosting a seventy-year-old is a lot more important than getting a second shot into a six-year-old or a first shot into an eight-year-old. You know that that's true, right? Most people, I think, do. But I've got concern about the fact that we don't. So if you're if you're talking to an older person, this is me saying this. If you're and there's Dr. Bogosh saying it, let's let's slow the roll. Okay, are we trying to score political points when we talk about mandates, or are we just going to focus our protection on who needs it the most? This is where we were at in the spring, and I'm not sure how great a job we did of it. And it cost us time. It might have cost us. 
time in terms of reopening. It probably did cost us lives when some of us were starting to get vaccinated already. I'll read it again. What's with the talk about mandating third doses with such unequal uptake? Because you look at the map in Ontario, the percentage of people that only have two doses that are in the kind of more target range for a bad outcome for COVID, 50 and over, comorbidities, lifelong smokers, people who are obese, get that third shot. And that's and and, and that should be the focus. That's got to be the focus. It's great that Toronto, the city of Toronto ran this superhero campaign and get kids vaccinated because parents had the choice to do that. And if they felt better over Christmas or New Year's or sending their kids back to school, awesome. Awesome. Who's against choice? Not this guy. Not. I don't think the vast majority of our listeners are against choice. The mandate's where we go, no, no, you need to take those vaccines. You need to not make a parent do this because that kid will miss out on things. You need to take this to seniors' homes. You need to take this to communities of people that haven't even got one shot, let alone two or three. And you got to tell them why this is urgent. And I'm not sure we're doing that well enough. Is there a way to, to get into what happened um, with this Randy Hillier person? I, I really struggle because I'm like, you know, I'm really careful around the hot mic. I'm, I'm not a Joe Biden. I'm not ready to, to drop uh, <laughs> s- swear bombs. But, um, but no that's when I, around here. when I hear that human being's name, if indeed that's what he is, um, you see, I can't help myself. It's, uh, this was a huge problem and a huge controversy that flared up yesterday. And another example of where um, social media just does not – I'm not sure it's uh, – it's 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 its best shepherd in terms of documenting <laughs> and and pushing away something that is hateful and and saying no that's that's that that violates our terms of uh, of responsibility here. No, social media is not very good at that. So I have questions about Randy Hillier, but before we get into that, so he did send, he did tweet something out yesterday uh, in reference to Transport Minister Omarl Gabra and said a terrorist speaks out to condemn Canadians to starvation in the name of being safe. So this tweet was then picked up by um, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino, uh, who said, this is a flagrantly abusive, offensive, and Islamophobic tweet. It's hate speech, full stop. There's no justi- justification for it on this platform or anywhere else. Over to you again, Twitter, Twitter safety and Twitter Canada. And then Twitter did get back to him and say that it has not violated the rules of Twitter and they will not be removing the tweet. Now this just blew up after that. Um, and you saw it last yeah. night, right? Yeah. And what did you think when you saw this? When you saw Randy? First of all, who, Randy is, he is an independent MP. MPP. Right? Yeah. A, an MPP. Right. And what's his deal? Where do I start? Um, <laughs> I, he just doesn't buy a lot of the um, narrative out there that many of us can you can ask a fair question about look at the conversation i had with steven del duca yesterday i'm not like that that couldn't po- i couldn't possibly be painted as somebody that doesn't believe covid 19 is is not real that it's not the medical and and global crisis of our lifetime for keeping people alive uh, if you told me that anything could stop our planet for two straight years from, you know, walking forward, left, right, left, right, I wouldn't have believed it. And Randy's a, a person that I think has a lot of mm-hmm. doubt uh, and and um, and hate in his heart. Uh, and I understand why people look at him and go, well, he's speaking for me. He might be about this restriction or that restriction, but I can't isolate just those two things or three things or four things. I have to look at the full package and go, 
the, the message is dangerous, and it's not based. It, it, it would be a dangerous thing. You know, you know that if you and I had chatted in the summer and this show had been up and running in, in June and someone said, do you want to have Randy Hillier on? We just said no. I wouldn't have had to convince you. You wouldn't have had to convince me. Doesn't deserve nope. a platform at this point in time. But he has one on social media, and I can't is do anything about inde- that. Well, many people do who shouldn't, right? So, so is Randy independent because he chooses to be or because no one wants him? It's a little bit of both when when you question. I mean, Roman Baber is out there, right? Uh, who's mm-hmm. who was kicked out of uh, conservative caucus as well, and um, that it's not quite as well. I don't believe any of this is real, and this is you know the, the statement alone. A terrorist speaks out to condemn Canadians to starvation in the name of being safe. Yes. Um, so this comes from an, an your elected- question might be: Does he say that about a white person? You oh. might be say, does he call a terrorist a white? He might call Justin Trudeau a terrorist, and we might shrug our shoulders, but. It doesn't matter. It doesn't you, matter. It's hate so speech. So this is hate comes speech. from an elected official in Ontario. So he's Hillier's calling Al Gabra a terrorist because he's Muslim and he's Arab. Okay, this is complete Islamophobia and hate speech. And right, we're three days away from January 29th, which is the five-year anniversary of the Quebec City yeah. mosque attack. Yeah. And this tweet incites and encourages hate. And we we just had the London terrorism attack last year. You have to be careful with your words. Words have power. And there might be many people who think, oh, my God, get over it. It's not a big deal. It's just a tweet. That's what he's doing. He's trying to starve people with this and that. No, you have to be careful because things like the London attack, things like the Quebec City mosque attack, these things happen because because of a tweet like this. It starts off somewhere. It starts off small and it grows and it grows and it grows. And there has to be zero tolerance for this. It's hard to deny that there isn't um, a level of online radicalization that happens with people who who do end up having influence. What did the, the the van attack guy in Toronto said? This is who inspired me. Okay, other other incels, which is a problem all onto itself. Yes. Um, but but as well, the the mosque attacker said the same thing. He looked to a couple uh, mass mass murderers in the United States and said, these are people that inspired me. So all this is a problem. And people want to play, you know what I call it, whataboutism. And a lot of people call it whataboutism. They, well, do you like Justin Trudeau saying that, that anti, you know, anti-vaxxers mm-hmm. are all racist misogynists? No, I don't. No, but that's a huge not. difference. That's a, like, that's a massive stretch. You're leaping over tons of hurdles to justify yes. anything that Randy Hillier said yesterday. It's all and wrong. I, I don't believe that... Hillier would have used the word terrorist if it wasn't directed at anybody else. I think because the extreme Islamophobia that Arabs in this country face every day, whether it's a microaggression, whether it's blatant, whether it's whatever it is, it's, it, it has to stop. And it's because of a simple tweet like this that can, that encourages it, that continues it, and it starts somewhere and there has to be zero tolerance in our country. Especially from an elected official. Do you want Justin Trudeau to say something about this today? Do you want like Absolutely, he runs I our do. country? And I yes. people say to me all the time, ah, you're you're digging in on this politician and that politician. You don't talk about like I I, I don't know where they've been. I don't know where they've been because I, you know me. I got no. 
I got no time for partisan politics right now. I got no time for uh, a, a, any kind of weakness in terms of moving this forward for your family, for mine, for all of our listeners. Justin Trudeau hasn't done his job to me the last two years, but a lot of politicians. Mm-hmm. We've seen a John Tory hasn't done his job saying, <laughs> you don't shut down my restaurants in this city. Why can't this be open? Why can't he's great when he, you know, great when you got to, you know, light up the Toronto sign downtown. He's great when he presents the key of the city to Gordon Lightfoot without a mask on standing next to him and all that. But um, but w- where's he been the last two weeks talking about how Toronto's the most locked up city once again on the planet? Where is that? And I don't see it. But I'm not. I do not give Justin Trudeau a free pass in a lot of this. Step up in front of a microphone today and call this out for the disgraceful behavior that it is. Do absolutely, your job. Absolutely, absolutely. I am waiting to hear that. I want him to do that. He absolutely needs to do that. There has to be zero tolerance, especially where we're at in this country with, with Islamophobia, with anti-Semitism. We have there's zero tolerance, and I want to hear from our prime minister today on this. It would be great if uh, if that was the case. Um, We'll come back. Uh, by the way, let me read this uh, from Jim and Branford on uh, text 2899751640, and, uh, and we can react to this too. Uh, are they go- Morning, are they going to burn down Ottawa on Saturday, this protest? No, but those in government at the federal, provincial level better be listening. I think we can all agree we need the truckers and better listen to them. Not only are they going to be represented at this protest, but other segments of society across the board. People are mad, tired, they've had enough, and are done rolling over and playing dead. And people might think there might be some, you know, doctor that says oh well that's so selfish and and we get back to the well if you go out and eat at a restaurant and you know take your grandfather to breakfast you're voting for schools to be closed or you're putting people in the hospital this that that tactic people have put up their hand and said I'm done with you blaming and shaming me. And I there's no moral crisis or no moral failure in acquiring COVID now at this point. And I, I'm worried that we did that too much, that we're like, you know how it is when you hear somebody gets COVID, you're like, how'd you get it? What were you doing? Where were you? And now we don't, I don't think we do that anymore. I don't think we do that like we did a year ago. So Jim and Brantford makes a great point. And if the majority of people feel that way, Sheba, they get to vote just like you and I do. They get to go to the ballot box. They get to have their say. Next June, they just did last September federally i really hope change comes we need it i think we're all frustrated with our politicians and i'm frustrated with every single politician that's been involved in this pandemic and sure no one could see it coming but it's here and i feel like it was extremely mishandled especially in ontario Mm. and i'm just frustrated you're right the blame and shame has to stop the division has to stop enough with it already there has to be another way for all of us to move forward together yeah and even people who are passing away from COVID, i know people who have whose family members, elderly family members, have passed away in you know long-term care, and they're hesitant to share that their family member had COVID because they feel shame. Where are we at? Where are we at when we feel shame for this, for a global pandemic that is so, this variant was so easy to catch? And, ima- and imagine we've got people saying, well, you know, you, you're talking now, other people that want just want to be selfish and go here and there. That's why they're bringing up suicide rates and addiction rates and depression rates. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. The idea mm. that those are politicized topics when you're talking about, uh, you know, it, it's not just a simple weight gain here and there. It's not uh, the freshman 15 when we all go away to university. It's it's <laughs> we're talking suicide, addiction, depression. And that's a big thing that's got hospitals struggling to keep up. That's a massive thing. Nurses and doctors that you all, that we speak to on this show are struggling to keep up as a result. They're not shrugging their shoulders at COVID. They're saying we got a wealth of problems on our plate right now, so we can't just focus on one anymore. We did it. We did that. We did that. Did it work? I'm not so sure it worked.
No, it didn't. And they're exhausted. We need to find a better way to move forward together. Well said. Annie Kidder uh, is uh, with People for Education. She is the executive director of it. And I really enjoy talking about uh, the education process with her. And Annie, thank you for making the time. I think when we talked, we were still, um, schools were still closed. There were, uh, you know, signs that it would get back to normal. We've been in, in it about a week now. We'll never find 30 teachers in a room that all agree on how it's going right now um, unanimously. But what's your feel when you speak to educators for how this week, this last five, six, seven days, of in-person learning has gone. Well, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't call it back to normal. I think that that's very important. Mm-hmm. I think that you know there's sort of two parts to it. One, I think for the most part, all educators and school staff are really happy to have kids back in school, and they know that's better for everybody, them for and for kids, um, and they're doing their best to make it work. I think. On the other end of the spectrum, uh, they're all under an incredible amount of strain uh, to to try to make it work, to deal with all the people who are off sick, um, and to ensure that they're, uh, you know, sort of understanding how the kids are doing, how they're doing emotionally and in terms of their well-being and their mental health, but also how they're doing educationally. And I think that that part is the kind of untold story of what's going on in schools. We understandably have focused really, really a lot on, you know, masks and vaccinations and safety. Of course we should. Uh, But we've been kind of missing the the education part in this conversation, I think. I found, I'm going to come back to the, the the, you hear now, and especially in the, in the GTA and in Toronto, but um, you, you made note on uh, on Twitter that the Canadian Teachers Federation is calling for something I find like long overdue. Like I think this will get created and we'll wonder why didn't we think of this 20 years ago, but it's the creation of a national table for public education. Uh-huh. And this has been a big problem, Annie, the last two years is people, I mean, I talked to my parents, former teachers, and they're like, where, where has this concept been? Because we just think, well, the province handles education and what works here won't work there. And, but yet we're, you know, we're not that big a country. Okay. We're not that big a country with 35 million people. Surely we can have some national standards and conversations about the importance of of doing this for our kids? Well, we have this pesky constitution, which makes (laughs) that actually harder than you would think. So there has been resistance for a a gazillion, well, since we've had a constitution, uh, because the provinces and territories very much guard their sort of jurisdictional, you know, right to go, no, 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 we have all the say over education. But I agree with the Canadian Teachers Federation, and I think that there is a way to have a conversation across the country about education. I mean, we're we're trying to do it now. I'm just, we've just been doing a big scan of all the education policies across the country. But until we do that, we're not going to be I, I don't think that we're going to uh, sort of communicate to people why education is important to everybody, whether you have kids in schools or not. And also, you know, to have that conversation about what kind of country we want to live in. And if that's the kind of country we want, then what's the role of schools? What do we need to be doing in our schools all across the country? And with keeping in mind, though, yes, you know, it, it, things are different everywhere. You have to respond to the unique uh, and, you know, sort of different needs and cultures of mm-hmm. different provinces and territories. But that national conversation, I think, would help. 
Uh, it's Annie Kidder joining us, of course, uh, and uh, just a fantastic voice executive director of People for Education. Now, let's let's check some boxes for what I'm hearing from teachers and see if you're hearing the same thing. I hear from a lot of teachers who uh, have their masks. They were worried uh, that, you know, maybe in the two weeks that it took the government, again, I can't defend the dithering in through all of December uh-huh. <laughs> once we knew what Omicron, what, you like that word, dithering? I'll use it dithering again. Dithering December. Okay. <laughs> I, like, I think it, we can just use it to describe I, December. Anyway, yeah, we need, it, we need a logo. We we need a website. We need all that stuff. So um, so th- more should have been done in December leading up to the holiday break. No question about it. But the majority of teachers I hear were able to use that time either to get that third vaccination shot and or to get masks that they felt more comfortable in. Are you hearing that also? Yeah, and I think that there's no that those things are happening. There's been quite a few complaints about the masks that were sent out for children. But, right. you know, I think teachers have their masks and that is a step. And, you know, that there was enough time then for everybody to get their boosters. And it's, you know, it's certainly much easier now to make appointments to get those shots. We still have a real problem uh, with little kids in terms of the percentage of kids who have who are vaccinated. So percentage of kids five to 11. But I think, yes, we got the masks. We got the boosters. We've done that tick tick on those boxes. Now, uh, ventilation. Many teachers reference this and some say I, I hear maybe I don't, want, I don't know if it's an equal amounts, but maybe it's more two thirds of teachers tell me I'm, I'm boosted. I've got my mask. Uh, I know what the job is. I'm going to go in and do the gig. This is this is what I signed up to yeah. do. I love my career. This is what I do. And I hear from some that say, well, it's an older school Our ventilation. I know there were some kind of rogue protests last week with teachers in their cars. Terrible weather for it. It's better to sit in your car in May. Fine, we agree on that. But I, I think the vast majority of teachers, I'm not saying they're they're dis, discounting ventilation, but those are also things that were kind of promised by the provincial government that they haven't necessarily delivered to all the schools on time. And I have no idea, you know, how, how we're doing on that front. And it mm-hmm. would be sort of board by board. I think it is important to note within all that, yes, you can be ventilated and you can have masks. I, you know, we, I live in a very safe family that was incredibly careful, tested a gazillion times, all boosted and vaccinated. I got COVID, my husband got COVID, and it's, it's so contagious mm-hmm. that you can do everything. You can still get COVID, sadly. So when we, you know, when we move the ball forward here, uh, are you seeing more of a normal spring? Predicting this is is virtually impossible. We don't have crystal balls, but when the weather starts to turn, we have to be hopeful that um, either either that or we're having two and a half years utterly of education, utterly compromised by COVID-19. And this was the first school closure, Annie, January 3rd, where I said, I think it's wrong. I I think it's wrong. I I don't even see the argument for it. But I've got teachers and, and they get a voice, too. And they're in the classroom and I'm not. And some disagreed with me on that. Well, and I think that, you know, the 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 hope for the spring, you know, is is some normalcy in terms of disease. You know, I'm I'm hoping that this was, you know, the worst thing that we've gone through and that, you know, things will get better in that way. And then I think or even now the focus has to be on what has the impact been on kids all this time and what's our vision and our plan in terms of how we're going to um, ensure that kids can can overcome this impact of the last two hellish years. You know, and it can, you can imagine if you're little, all this disruption or trying to learn online or just plain not feeling safe and worrying your parents are going to get sick. 
So, you know, that that really, I under, it's understandable the focus on, uh, you know, the again, on the safety, but what we really need to be thinking about now, mm-hmm. which has not been articulated in Ontario, is what are we doing from an educational point of view and what kind of resources, are, uh, you know, need to be there in schools? What do teachers need? What are teachers and principals seeing right now yeah. in their kids? And how are we listening to them? Because I think that's the big next step. Yeah, the listening is the most massive thing. It, I want to end on a positive note. So you tell me in a best case scenario, best case scenario, does our fall look as normal? <laughs> I know, I, I, I know we got eight months to get there, but does our fall 22-23 education year look a ton more normal? Do you see kids with at least masks being optional? Do you see sports being wide open, field trips being? We have to hope for that, right? We need that in our hearts to at least believe we can get there. Yeah, ab- and absolutely. I, I, I need it in my heart anyway. So, yes, I believe that's so. But, they, you know, and again, I'm not to harp on this, but we really need them to be focusing on how do we make sure that we've dealt with all of the kind of fallout of, of COVID on kids and that we're mm-hmm. still we're going to be dealing with, with it for, you know, the next at least couple of years and that's what's needed now is that point well and teachers i made this point in january too annie that i think there's being safe and feeling safe i understand there's a lot of people with collective and individual anxiety we got to yeah. listen to those people we got to get them yeah, you yeah. know the, the, the original concept was two weeks to slow the spread we got to we got to take time as much time as we need to crush people's anxiety about just being back in front of people again i yeah, know everybody yeah, feels yeah. it right yeah, no, and it's so weird now to feel like people aren't, other people aren't safe. Children who aren't vaccinated aren't safe. Yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's I'm sure it's done a job on all of our heads at this point. Yeah. Annie, thank you very much for your advocacy. Okay. Appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks a lot. Uh, Annie good. Kidder uh, from People for Education. By the way, she's, I, I, I should have mentioned this, pals with uh, Charles Pascal who was on, and, and Pascal was on with us yesterday. This is the most ringing endorsement. I don't think I've fished this out of him. Like, there's a little game we play at home called Fishing for Compliments. Fishing for Compliments. That'd be a great board game. It really would. But I don't think we were going here. I think Charles wanted to say this, and we just kind of dragged this out of him yesterday. Well, you are my favorite show. <laughs> uh, because I keep getting uh, invites to talk about all sorts of things related to public education from uh, other outlets, and I'm so tired of hearing my my own voice, but uh, when your uh, producer calls, I respond. Thank God. Yeah, and um, please, at the end of the interview, list all the shows alphabetically that you say no to. I think people should know where they <laughs> where they. Sh- <laughs> and then we hung up on him because he wouldn't do it. I mean, I got listen. You, you can give the show some love, but then if you're not going to answer the damn question, out you go. I, I, I cast you out. I know you've heard the phrase. Uh, not all not all heroes wear capes. I see people walking dogs in this weather. <laughs> they are, and maybe some of the dogs are even wearing capes. They're wearing booties and sweaters. That's what I see when I walk uh, in the areas where it's safe to walk. But that doesn't mean pets need to be outside. doesn't mean there isn't an element of concern. And even when I hear a dog barking outside, I know it's my neighbors. I know they've, they've got the best interest. i got dogs on one side of me, dogs on the other side. And I know how much they love them. But pets and this uh, weather and this extreme cold – do not uh, go together. I want to bring on uh, Sarah Michelle of Vetster. Uh, she's medical director and uh, a vet in out in uh, Hamilton, I believe. Dr. Michelle, thank you very much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. 
Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to have you. Yeah, this, uh, you know, so many layers of every topic we do seems to factor into the weather and all the snow we've got. But you're probably seeing what I see is that, uh, you know, it's it's still that rite of passage that people have to get their dogs outside. And uh, and sometimes the dogs don't want to go, but it's a pretty essential part of dog ownership. <laughs> it sure is. And, uh, you know, for many dogs, they're trained and their bathroom habits are, are outside. So, they have to get out there to relieve themselves. But with these really extreme temperatures, we need to be mindful when we're taking them out for longer excursions, protecting you know them from the cold, just like we would ourselves. I, this is amazing to me, and it probably shouldn't be surprising. People think, well, come on, they've got a furry coat or they've got lots of hair. But dogs can get frostbite like people can. Tell our audience, tell our listeners, our pet owners, what some of the warning signs are for a dog potentially getting frostbite? Well, that's a great question. And dogs can get frostbite because their extremities can feel the cold the same as ours. So their ear tips, their feet, um, any other sort of distal extremities, the tip of the tail, etc. And it's important if it's too cold for you outside, if there's warnings that, you know, exposed could feel frostbite uh, within a few minutes of being outside. It's the same rules apply for your your dog or your cat out there. Uh, And so being mindful of watching for change in color on extremities uh, or, you know, if your pet is really uncomfortable and and wanting to go back inside, those are all things that we want to be really cognitive of and not spend too long outside. A medical director, Dr. Sarah Michelle of Vetster, joining us on Toronto today on 640 Toronto. Uh, you highly recommend, it appears, uh, the booties. They're not just, uh, you know, it's not just to, uh, like they're walking the runway at some fashion show. They, they There's a there's an element of, of real need for it, not just because of cold, but also, you know, people that ice, ice the salt, to put salt down on sidewalks or even in our driveways or front steps. Um, those are problems for uh, for dogs and their paws, aren't they? Yes, absolutely, Greg. Actually, um, rock salt is really caustic and can be cause very uh, significant amount of pain to the mm. foot pads of dogs. You have to remember that the foot pads are hairless, and so it can, you know, seep in and, and cause burning and pain. So, booties can protect. Uh, there are also several balms out there that can be applied to the foot pad to act as a protective barrier and for some dogs they tolerate a product like that much better than a booty and there are also little um, rubber sort of sheets that can sometimes be used that dogs may have better grip in than some of the really sort of fancy fashion footwear that might be out there. Are we starting to, uh, again, I, I think the messaging to Amplify is really important that you give, uh, but um, this is a newer trend, right? Like 20 years ago, you didn't see as many dogs walking around, but I think pet owners just say, and they've they've done the research and they say, this is going to, this is obviously way better for them to have it than to not have it in cold weather. We didn't do this 20, 30 years ago. You're right, we didn't, but I think we've all evolved as pet owners and awareness and products on the market, right? So uh, it is a newer trend, but recognizing that the pets are more comfortable and able to get out and and relieve themselves and have some fresh air in a more comfortable manner makes us want to do that for our pets, our our furry family members.
Now, um, some people have uh, outdoor cats. My uh, my guys uh, indoor strictly, and I'm well aware of uh, that. If I stopped feeding him, he would be become instantly disloyal to me. Um, <laughs> there's there's advantages. I mean, you know, cats use a litter box, dogs don't. So there are some advantages. But cats going outside, give us a feel for that as well. Th- those are those are harder creatures to put booties and sweaters on. Put it bluntly, they sure are. And I think you have to be if you have a cat who goes in and outside, really cognizant of the temperature. Uh, you know, cats, same thing. They can experience frostbite quite easily, particularly on their ear tips. They stick, stick right up up there. Um, and if they go outside, really keeping tabs on how long they're out there. If they're really persistent, some cats just really like it outside. Um, you know, you may even want to consider some kind of outdoor shelter for them that they can get away from wind and have some respite from from the cold temperatures and of course the other thing if you have an outdoor pet is making sure they have access to fresh water because obviously in the cold weather weather water turns to ice and so there are heated water bowl devices that can be applied um, to make sure that there's fresh water out there if need be all this is helpful uh we got a lot of pet owners that listen i appreciate you coming on sarah thank you very much for the time Thank you. Have a great day. You got uh, Dr. Sarah Michelle uh, from uh, Vetster. I got nothing new on this. Um, by the way, I got nothing new on this Spotify Neil Young thing. Nothing. I. It's um, Neil Young wants to pull his music from Spotify because um, Joe Rogan uh, exists. He wants. He says it's either either he goes or I go. Now that's a problem, I suppose. In fact, old um, Neil Old started trending yesterday. Gord, that's. That's not a that's a hashtag. I wouldn't have thought of that. Neil Old. Neil <laughs> okay. Neil Old. But he wants Spotify to take his music down uh, because of Joe Rogan's well. podcast. Now, Neil's got Joe's got like twenty million downloads a week or something. It's something insane like that. And I'm seeing Neil has about six million fo- but it's a battle of titans here. This isn't this isn't Dexy's Midnight yeah. Runners saying take down Come On Eileen and any other song that people would recognize. But doesn't the do the artists get paid from Spotify? It'd be because I don't think they are, right? Because then it'd be a bigger... Pennies on the dollar? Yeah. I, it doesn't feel like it's about money. He's one of these guys as well that sold off his um, his rights. Yeah. Right? And he made $150 million. Yeah. Um, so he can go all, he can go to all the San Jose Sharks games he wants. He it's, lives out there yeah. with uh, his wife, Daryl Hannah. You knew that, right? I did not know they that. They are married, the former Jackson Brown uh, huh. girlfriend. I did not know that. Yeah. Huh. Uh, well, we'll keep people updated on Joe Rogan. V. Uh, Neil Young, and see where this uh, and <laughs> on the radar of things that matter right now. That's very low. It's oh, it's high. Are you? It, what if Neil was on the podcast with with Joe? Uh, You're not listening. No. Oh, okay, maybe they yell at each other. <laughs> Seven thirty one. Uh, Dave Bradley, you want to pick a side? Joe Rogan, Neil Young. I don't want to put you on this. I don't even have a side on this. I just find it fascinating. I I, I like Neil Young's music though. I do too. Yeah, I'm a hundred percent big fan. Yeah, but ultimatums. That's a big. That's yeah. That's a big uh, line in the sand drawn. Should Toronto today do that? We're on Spotify. Should we give you know, or uh, should we give Spotify a, an ultimatum? It's either us or Joe Rogan. See Probably how that not. Works out for yeah. us. <laughs> <laughs> They've got a way a big cost benefit analysis yeah, exactly. of that. Yeah, that would last as long as like. 
Tyson and Spinks in uh, 1988. Uh, what are we working on for 8 o'clock? Well, they're calling it a Freedom Convoy, and it's truckers driving across the country upset over vaccine mandates for crossing the border. They're now in Kenora. After starting in B.C., they'll be in Ottawa on Saturday. We'll tell you when they're expected to pass through Toronto. And we knew there could be more announcements like these, but a survey outside of what once was an Indigenous residential school in B.C. has identified what could be 93 potential human burials. Just one of several sites being inspected across the country, and it's being called a stealth version of the Omicron variant. There's been 51 cases already identified in Canada. Health experts say they're just keeping an eye on this one. It's not yet to the point of variant of concern. Looks like it's no more serious than the original Omicron. We'll get more at 8 o'clock. Thanks, Dave. Sounds good. On the way back, uh, a chat with Annie Kidder from People for Education. What's her word on the street and in the classroom and in the hallways and in the teachers' lounges about how we've done a week in to a return to in-person learning? We'll get her read on it and where we need to go in the next few weeks, as importantly, coming up next. 732, let's check the roads right now, and we do that with Jackie King. Um, Outdoors. Not safe right now, and it's something where I think we've all looked and said, can I do anything? What can I do? What's happening with the homeless situation in Toronto, which also COVID-19 has exacerbated? Uh, Alex Chang is Director of Programs at Blue Door Shelters, and he's kind enough to take some time to join me now at the top of the 7 o'clock hour. Alex, thank you very much for making the time uh, for our listeners. I appreciate it. Hi, great. Uh, good morning. Thank you for having me. Oh, totally. Um, boy, this has been um, beyond uh, the, uh, the the perfect storm, no pun intended, uh, for people that are forced uh, to spend time outside this time of year. Homelessness is a uh, it's very difficult topic 12 months of the year, and we saw it in the summer. We talked about some of the encampments, some of the, you know, the brutal methodology by which the city and, and its police move people out of those encampments. We got a different story right now. It's bitter cold. There's snow everywhere. This is a massive, massive problem uh, for people that don't have a home. And you're absolutely right, Greg. I, I think uh, you know cold weather events, extreme cold weather events like this, disproportionately affect uh, vulnerable populations, like those who are you know homeless or at risk of being homeless, especially due to COVID, because there's uh, a lack of spaces really for people to go to during the daytime. But I think the most important thing to really keep in mind is that there are local shelters, local services, warming centers uh, that uh, that people can access. In terms of being part of the community, there are ways to get involved as well. In terms of being able to uh, call those services and uh, find out what uh, uh, what it is that uh, that they need. For us, for example, we're always looking for uh, you know donations, um, especially gift cards that will allow us then to purchase uh, some of the gear that people need to be able to stay safe out there. Um, you know, uh, you've, you've you've hit it straight on the nail as well. I mean, homelessness is a year-round problem, but uh, we do get to see it highlighted with extreme weather events like like extreme heat and extreme uh, uh, extreme cold. Uh, uh, but uh, there's uh, things that we can do all year round as well. Uh- it's, it's so important to point out, uh, bluedoor.ca is where people can go to find out more. We're speaking with Alex Chang, Director of Programs there. Um, you've got three places, Leader Place, Porter Place, Kevin's Place, and they, they vary, right? One's for families, one's for men. Men are far more disproportionately homeless than women. It just works out that way. And there's also uh, younger male homes, uh, a, a spot there called Kevin's Place. Why is it important to make those distinctions between demographics? 
Well, I think uh, homelessness affects uh, affects all of us, right? Uh, we have, as you said, we have um, we have a place for men uh, that are uh, that are uh, that are more disproportionately affected, but we also have families uh, that run into tough times. Uh, sometimes it is financial uh, difficulty. Sometimes it is a family breakup, and they de- they uh, they do need a space to be able to uh, you know uh, use as a launching pad to get their lives together uh, and uh, and move on to better things. Same with our youth service. I mean, we have a lot of youth that. Uh, that end up being at risk of being homeless or homeless altogether. And um, and we need to make sure that services are designed across the board to uh, meet the needs of every population, every um, uh, every gender, every uh, every identity, every age group. The hesitancy some have going indoors, um, and obviously we should point out clearly, uh, some people out there are dealing with uh, a form of mental illness or there's a distrust or there's an abuse issue uh, and and th- they find it difficult uh, to trust in these circumstances, especially in COVID times. Um, the convincing and, and the uh, cajoling, if you will, can't be easy at times to say, you're going to die out here. We can take care of you and, and at least give you a temporary respite and help find a right direction for you. Yeah, you're, you're you're right, Greg. I think uh, I think the most important part is getting the messaging out there uh, that there are safe spaces for people to access. Uh, even with COVID, uh, most of our services, uh, all, all of the services that I know of, have increased um, uh, really their precautions due to COVID and uh, an increased capacity uh, to be, uh, to be able to make sure that people are safe within our spaces, uh, that there is separation, and, uh, and at the best of times, uh, uh, individual units that they, that people can access as well, and really. The the, uh, the answer to all of this as well is uh, being able to find a way to house people as quickly as possible too, at least those that, that, are, that are able to be housed as quickly as possible. What's the vaccination uh, policy for Blue Door? What what needs to be done? What What are your requirements, your standards for it? Well, the requirements uh, in terms of our staff team is that we are all vaccinated. We do have mm-hmm. a vaccine policy in place uh, at Blue Door as an organization. Uh, for uh, for uh, those who seek uh, support from us, uh, we have run vaccination clinics at, uh, at, our, at our locations, but we have also precautions in place to ensure that people have enough physical distancing, have enough ma- masking in place, uh, sanitation stations, and so forth, so that people yeah, so that people can stay safe. What are we not doing well enough in the city in your mind, Alex? Um, it, it doesn't have to be a call out of this person or that person or, or a policy in general, but I see I see this happen all the time in the United States. People, Seattle's figured this out. Portland's figured this out. There's California cities. The weather's an advantage there in those cities. I got it. But they're building these tiny houses, and uh, and, and we have not necessarily done that. Just a smaller dwelling um, and, and conform to building code, up to par and all that stuff. And it's, it's meant to be, again, just just a lifeline, a lifeline for people. It's not meant to be for five, six, seven years. It's meant to be a lifeline to get people back on their feet. You're, you're absolutely on, 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 the, on the right path, uh, Greg. I think uh, the answer to all of this is uh, making sure that we can have enough affordable housing so that pe- so people aren't at risk of having to uh, not to be homeless or, or having to, be, uh, to live in shelters, for example, right? We've seen over the past couple of decades uh, housing prices go off the roof, but we've also seen over the last couple of years um, uh, really tougher financial times, right? I think uh, as a policy, I think, uh, I think what we need to look at is how do we, how do we ensure that we can increase that housing stock throughout Canada and, uh, and ensure that there are uh, accessible spaces for people to be able to reach to and, uh, um, uh, and feel comfortable uh, you know, accessing and, and, and being housed permanently. Yeah.
You can find out more at bluedoor.ca. Uh, it's it, go to that website if you know of someone or know of someone who knows someone who's uh, in a, you know a lot of jeopardy right now with the temperature, with the weather, with being outside. It's incredibly harsh conditions out there, but we should make this a priority twelve months a year. I want to keep having these conversations. Thanks, for, thanks very much for coming on, Alex. Thank you so much, Craig. You bet. Alex Chang is Director of Programs at Blue Door Shelters. I'm a big believer um, in uh, in accountability. I love politicians who lead by example. They act quickly and decisively. Too often it gets turned around. It's like, oh, well, he's he's calling out members of his own party or he's gone rogue or anything like that. That's not what I see here. This is everybody in the same boat trying to row the oars of the boat in the right direction. Uh, and our next guest said we got to do better when it comes to the federal government sending vaccine doses to countries not as privileged, not as well off as us. And that MP is Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, and he joins me now. It's great to have you on Toronto today. Thanks very much for making the time for me. Yeah, thanks for having me. What I said at the beginning there, um, that, that that seems to be why people get into politics. I think that's that's the idealism involved. That's the that's the pragmatism involved of, of trying to do the best uh, that, that we can collectively, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And, and in this pandemic, we've worked really hard across party lines in, in many instances to deliver for Canadians and to support Canadians in need and to get us through this thing. And when you take a step back and you think, how can we make our most significant contribution going forward? I think we have to reflect on the fact that we've spent hundreds of billions of dollars towards Canada's domestic pandemic response. And we could spend a fraction of that to save lives around the world and to prevent the next variant, which is obviously in our own interest. The things we haven't done, I, I do want to. I do want to cover some of those bases with you. What can be done in the very short term, uh, Nathaniel, over the next few months, over the next twelve weeks or so, to do to do what we pledged, and maybe even step above that. Right. So to date, we've delivered two and a half billion dollars, so a small fraction of our total spending towards international development assistance in this crisis, and one point three billion of that has been directed towards the ACT Accelerator. And again, a smaller fraction of that has been directed towards procuring vaccines, tests, and treatments. So what we really need to do in the short term is share doses, resources, and knowledge. And on doses, we've got a commitment for 200 million doses by way of donation. We've got to make sure we realize that and expedite that timeline as fast as we can. On the resources, there's a call for additional financing of the ACT Accelerator, the international effort to procure tools to address COVID. We've got to really step up our game. The global effort to date has been insufficient. Canada has been a leader, but the global effort has been insufficient. We really have to step up and show the world how we can and should contribute. And then third is, is knowledge. And we've, I think, been lackluster here. We really need to focus on addressing barriers to vaccine production, and that's around intellectual property rights. And so we need to facilitate tech transfer, help build regional hubs around the world for manufacturing. And then lastly, we really need to step up our game in terms of providing resources for delivery, because it's not going to be enough that the vaccine supply is online. We need the resources, the, the human resources, the cold storage, the, the syringes to make sure people can actually get those vaccines into arms. Nathaniel Erskine-Smith is our guest, Liberal MP on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. Um, when you decide to speak up, do you, do, again, I, I, as I said out of the gate, I, I, I think sometimes we live in an echo chamber, we surround ourselves with with like-minded people, and this is this is a challenge, I think, to to not just yourself, but but your own government here. I, I, I think it takes some bravery to do that, but I bet you most people have said, yeah, like sometimes, sometimes we're juggling so many balls in the air at once, we, we lose focus on one or two. The overwhelming reaction to the motion that I have 
I'm, I'm introducing a motion. Parliament isn't sitting yet, but we're introducing. I'm going to introduce a motion when we get back. Uh, you know, the overwhelming response to that motion has been yes, we need to do more, and and from across party lines. And I should note, back in May, there were over 70 colleagues of mine and and I. We worked together to sign an open letter to call for the government to address IP barriers to vaccine production, and members from every single party signed that letter. So, you know, there's a lot of support in my party to do more. There's a lot of support, I think, across all parties to do more, recognizing that this isn't only a matter of doing the right thing, it's a matter of a moral obligation to save lives around the world for low-income countries. By the way, 10 billion doses have been administered around the world. 10% have been administered in low-income countries. So we really need to do more just as our moral obligation. But let's also remember, this is in our own self-interest. When we see... Omicron, obviously, I think is a reminder to us that the next variant is on the horizon and the best answer to prevent the next variant is global vaccine equity. And I think people look and say sometimes, and maybe it's a cynical approach, they looked at Omicron, South Africa, they looked at vaccine uptake, and, and many people in South Africa were like, oh, now you're ready to give us you know, the proper amount. Of, and South Africa is one of the richer uh, African-based countries, and uptake there was about 25% when we first learned about Omicron. But as you know, Nathaniel, our listeners might not, it was 6 7 8% in some areas. We've got to at least give people the choice to take the vaccine or not. And we haven't done a great job in the G7 or, or in the Western world uh, to make sure that they've at least got that option over the last 12, 14 months. That's exactly right. So in Canada, over 80% of Canadians have received a first dose. In low-income countries, it is under 10%. That is an obviously unacceptable state of affairs, not only as a matter of basic fairness, but especially as a matter of our own self-interest. And so I think we are increasingly recognizing in developed countries that we need to do more. The question is, what does that look like? And the ACT Accelerator, there, there is this international foundation in place to, to do this work, and we need to step up our contributions to it. And we need to join our allies in the United States and, and, and other allies to push for the TRIPS waiver, which addresses those IP barriers. And we really need to increasingly turn our minds to providing resources for, for how we move from ports to arms. And we don't just deliver vaccines to particular countries, but we support public health capacity to deliver those doses into arms. And so there's a lot more we can do. There's a lot more we should do. And we, we do need to reflect on just how much we have spent on our own domestic pandemic response. And we're talking about a, a very small fraction of that spending going towards what is the most significant way we can end this pandemic. Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, our guest, um, he's an MP uh, for Beaches East York here in the GTA for the Liberal Party. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, and I, I think it's timely and fair to ask you about it, um, this trucker convoy headed towards Ottawa. You live, you work in Ottawa. There's a lot of talk of it. It looks like it's growing in numbers. What's your reaction to it? What do we need to do on, on Saturday in terms of having a proper conversation, having a proper debate about some of what um, these people are raising? I'd say a few different things. One, it's important for everyone listening to understand that vaccine mandates are incredibly effective at increasing uptake, and we continue to need to increase uptake not only in Canada, but around the world. So it's important to note that they that they do work, and we're in the middle of a global pandemic, and we need to do everything that we can that works. Secondly, I think it's unfortunate that this is cast as sort of a, a freedom rally of sorts. There is a sensible conversation I think we can have around supply chain disruptions, and obviously, this is a reciprocal measure and much notice was given. And the U.S. has this measure in place as well. So I, I don't think this is something that is going to change on the horizon. But there, there, there could well be a sensible conversation around supply chain disruptions and a cost benefit analysis as, as between supply chain disruptions and public health benefits. But we're not having a sensible conversation. This is 
um, misplaced appeal to liberty. You've got conservative colleagues of mine, I think, using really unfortunate language around vaccine vendettas. And you had the former conservative leader saying the prime minister is the greatest threat to freedom in this country. And I, I think all of that is really unfortunate and, and problematic. And, and we need to tone things down. We need to make sure we emphasize that we manage our, our, disagreement, our disagreements with respect fundamentally and we understand what works and, and, and we follow the evidence. And, and I think, frankly, those of us in politics have to remember that we're trustees in the public interest and uh, democracies can be fragile and, and we shouldn't be, I think, I, I don't think we should be supporting the kind of rhetoric that can be really problematic and, 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 and move debate sideways. So, you know, I, 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 hope, I, I hope we manage the, you know, I hope we manage it. Yeah, we'll see where it all goes. Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, thanks for your advocacy on the global vaccine issue. You have a you have a, a screaming human being in your house. I'm not going <laughs> to keep you. A- <laughs> I've been there, been there, done that, bought the, bought the T-shirt. Thanks for coming on the show. Please come on more often. All good. Thanks very much. usually have a weekly visit with our next guest, pharmacologist Sabina Vora Miller. It's great to have you on. How are you holding up? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me again. Someday we'll all be able to go outside again for more than 11 minutes at a time. <laughs> Is that your hope? <laughs> tell me you don't. Tell me you don't love this. Some people like the snow. Some people love it. I, uh, I'm, I'm not a fan. Not a fan at all. You know what? I, I'll be, I'll be. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to tell you my little secret. I we want more can, secrets. This is good on the I, show. Good. Yeah, I cannot walk on snow because I just don't have the balance. I didn't grow up here. I didn't grow up with snow. And it's one of those things you learn how to do when you're little and you're walking in snow and you're walking on ice. I didn't have any of that training. I haven't so, I haven't seen any uh, international studies that say uh, that, 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 but I, I get it. Listen, I went out for a walk with my wife Sunday and I'm like, no, we're, I'm, go- I'm going down at some point and I'm going to separate my shoulder, go to the emergency room. We got it. We got to turn back. It was too windy and I felt too... Uh, too ginger, if you will. My my five year old holds my hand and says, "Mommy, hold my hand." <laughs> well, it sounds well. It sounds like the five year old has more confidence than you in the snow, though. So, or it's e- or it's equal, right? It's you, you pick each other up a little bit. Exactly. We, we saw this about um, a new COVID vaccine, which targets specifically the Omicron variant. And as you know, and we're going to get into it. So much is out there, and you're like, "Should I believe? Is this a ten out of ten for believability? Is this a two? Out of, where is it?" But um, they they are enrolling adults into a trial, and Moderna wants to start its own omicron specific shot because um the current vaccines we have omicron hasn't hasn't completely eluded but we've obviously seen a lot more um double vaccinated uh breakthrough cases um what's your thought on the potential for another covid vaccine that targets only omicron will we get something like that or is it even necessary yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, it's really prudent to prepare and have this data available if we do need to use it. I think that if we have this data, then we can make an evidence-based decision on whether there is, in fact, a need for an Omicron-specific vaccine or not. But what we don't know at this point is what data is actually going to be required or necessary or what the process for approval would be. So a lot of these things are question marks right now, and I think also we need to remember that this data won't be available until at least mid-year of this year. Um, and frankly, it remains to be seen if Omicron will continue to be the variant in circulation. I mean, if anything, this pandemic has taught me is that the next variant is circulating before we've even dealt with the previous one. So, I mean, I think there's a lot that is a question mark right now, but I think it's fantastic that we're being prudent and we're being proactive and we're doing these studies. 
I think we've all, well, put it this way, we've all learned our lesson to forecast four months ahead and say, you know, what what will our planet look like? What will our own individual? I asked Andy exactly. Kidder that about schools in the fall, and she just started laughing, and I'm like, yeah, it's not the, not the best question, but I was looking for a panacea, best-case scenario question for schools. But to your point, yeah, we, you know, there's real-world data that's followed in on, on the original variant, the alpha variant. Obviously, we've got it on the Delta variant now. We're still, we're still working on Omicron real-world data for people that have recovered from it. Yeah, and you know what? There is a lot of data coming out right now from a variety of different places. I mean, CDC just had some fantastic reports coming out. We have some smaller reports coming from New York, from BC, from Ontario, that is showing that the vaccines are, you know, especially once you've got, got the booster, it's effective, um, very effective, in fact, in preventing severe illness and hospitalization. I mean, boosters, after boosters, is more than 90% efficacy right now to prevent severe illness. That's fantastic. That's what we need to see. Um, and there's also some data to show that even with two doses, we're having at least, you know, 70% efficacy in preventing severe illness. And I think that's fantastic. Um, So what we have right now with the vaccines, especially once you're boosted, is still giving us protection against severe illness. Will oral antivirals, which are available now, the Paxlovid, uh, it has Dr. Bogosh has talked about that with me. Dr. Zane Chagall has talked about that with me. And they're like, we got to, you know, no one wants to rush Health Canada. No one wants to rush NASI. No one wants this to be poorly communicated. So there is a time and place. And we've been patient with vaccines before. What will the oral antivirals do to defang, for lack of a better word, uh, Omicron? Yeah, I mean, I so I, I love ther- I love that we have therapeutic options right now. I think that's fantastic. Paxlovid is, I mean, it's a fantastic medication. Um, the only issue is that there are a lot of rate limiting factors with this, right? You have to first of all give it within first five days. We know testing is a huge issue right now in in Ontario. The second thing with Paxlovid is that there are two. There are actually two antivirals in this in this one medication. And one of them causes a lot of drug-drug interactions. I mean, it used to be the drug of nightmares in school, right, when I was in pharmacology school. Um, and remember that this is really meant for people who have risk factors, which means they're, these are the people who are generally on other medications already. So we're going to have, you know, a hard time with respect to the drug-drug interaction. So it's not going to be something you know, that we're going to be able to dispense as easily as we had originally hoped um, for in a therapeutic. Personally, what I feel is a bigger issue right now is that we are critically low in a lot of the medications we are using to treat moderate to severe illness. And we've been low for a couple of months now. And Mm -hmm. I think that is going to be a huge um, huge issue as we get into this next hospitalization wave that we are in and we're seeing people being hospitalized with, you know, severe illness and we just don't have very much to offer to them. Well, one thing that leaps off the page as you say that to me is um, it can't be any sort form of substitute for the vaccine. This was my concern in the fall is that is that people were... Uh, we're masking up and going, well, I, I feel like the mask is some iron fortress. And you'd say to them, you got to get vaccinated. The mask isn't going to protect you like a vaccine is. It's just another layer it's, or, mm-hmm. or so be it. So, yeah, we have to keep promoting vaccination over oral treatment. It's not a substitute for vaccination. I mean, prevention is always worth a lot more than cure, right? And, yeah. I, and, and, it's, and it's really interesting because I have a lot of people saying, well, I don't trust the pharmaceutical company. That's why I am not taking the vaccine. But, it, you know, ironically, Paxlovid is 
also manufactured by Pfizer, who makes the vaccine, um, and costs a lot more than what the vaccine costs. So, I mean, you know, I think that vaccinations are always always the first line of defense here. You know, we've seen again, we have data to show that vaccines are working to prevent illness, Mm -hmm. severe illness. um, And so they have to be our first line of defense. Having therapeutics, especially for those who are immunocompromised, is going to be a game changer. And that's something we need to keep in that back pocket, specifically for those who are immunocompromised or at a higher risk. But it's not a substitute for vaccines. It's never been a substitute. It will never be a substitute. Well said. Tell me again um, about your conversations with people who are, are struggling to decide whether they get vaccinated or not. I, I took a lot of phone calls out of the gate at 8 o'clock about a study from the states that shows that 18 to 34 uh, men and women are more afraid of getting very sick than 65 plus. There's something wrong with the messaging if that's the case. Yeah, it's a, it's a factor for everybody. What are those conversations like where you're trying to convince somebody that um, that they're sort of playing with fire being unvaccinated. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that I've been doing a lot of this work now for, you know, almost a year and a half at this point. Um, and I think that in the beginning, you know, I, there was a lot of questions and apprehensions about the vaccines. Um, I'm getting to a point, though, at this point that, that it's becoming very hard to convince people. Um, I think that a lot of work last year went into building the confidence, um, for, you know, with, mm-hmm. on, on these mm-hmm. vaccines. But right now, I think a lot of people who are holding out are pretty well set in their ideologies. And there's not much that I can do to actually convince them, which is really unfortunate. I mean, we've given nine billion doses of these vaccines globally. I mean, I don't know how much more data people are going to need to see before they can get vaccinated. And I mean, you know, and it's yeah. interesting, again, you know, when we talk about the um, you know, the, the irony in these conversations, we don't have that much data on safety on Paxlovid, right? But again, people are more willing to take therapeutics than they are to take vaccines that we now have so much fantastic data on. Um, I think there's a lot of apprehension with like long-term risks and things like that, which we know is not really a concern with vaccines. Um, it's just it's going to take a lot more conversations to actually convince people at this point. I'm seeing that too, yeah. Sabina Vora-Miller, uh, pharmacologist, our guest on uh, 640 Toronto on Toronto Today. Uh, now, the Spotify thing. I think this is really interesting, and you and I haven't got a chance to talk about it yet. You're one of 270 physicians and scientists signing a document uh, that wants Spotify to have a clear policy that prohibits misinformation, and obviously the Joe Rogan Experience podcast was part of what you set your sights on. Is there anything misunderstood about this? Some people have said is this censorship is this what what is it you're looking for from the spotify platform itself when you sign this document yeah and so we're not asking for the joe rogan show to be taken down that was not something we'd ever asked for and i think that's a huge point of confusion with sure i'm glad i'm glad we clarified it yeah yeah because i had listeners asking and i'm like no that's not what's happening here i'm glad you said it yourself good right and that's the first thing that i want to clarify what we're asking is that there needs to be a clear policy that says okay if this is blatant, flat-out misinformation, then perhaps this is not the platform where we need to be um, encouraging that information to to be spread, right? And so, I mean, I think one of the key, um, uh, you know, uh, um, people that Joe Rogan has had on his, on his show that we are concerned with is, is for instance, Joe Malone, uh, sorry, not Joe Malone, um, Robert Malone, mm-hmm. 
who, you know, I mean, has been deplatformed de- from a variety of different platforms already, like, you know, Twitter, um, YouTube, all of these have already deplatformed him. And the reason is because some of the information that, that you know, that he, that he says is just blatantly misinformation. I mean, you're trying to have a conversation and you're calling things mass psychosis. I mean, there's no way for me to have a dialogue with that, right? Um, there's just mm. absolutely no way to have a conversation. And th- that is really the misinformation is the part that we are asking Spotify to have a clear policy on um, because it's it's just really hard for me to debug things when it's constant and it's based on absolutely nothing um, accurate. Um, and, it's, and, and I know people are saying, well, why don't you just go on the Joe Rogan show and clarify <laughs> things? And I'm like, well, sure. I mean, I'm always, I'm happy to be, you know, but it's his show. He needs to invite me. And, and many of us who, you know, in, the, in the 270 who signed that letter have been asking Joe Rogan to go on a show to clarify a lot of these things, and they're, they're met with silence, right? Well, here's what I saw, too, and, and I, I'm, I'm glad you clarified a lot of that because, as you, as you know, with social media, or with uh, sometimes I'll say something and I get this, it's a game of broken telephone because it gets shared with four people, and I'm like, no, 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 that wasn't said. So we got a highly segmented media world for sure uh, and a lot of misinformation abounds. I've seen. I watched a good ten minutes of Sanjay Gupta going on Joe Rogan, and he said I wanted to go on to tell him where I stood, and I watched that conversation, and I found it valuable. To your point, and so I think there's a there's a need for those conversations with those who we disagree with. But to your point, something that has absolutely been medically debunked and and invalidated by the vast vast majority of medical experts, I agree with you. That's that's more problematic than Sanjay because yeah, you're not saying well Sanjay Gupta shouldn't go on or Joe Rogan shouldn't have a microphone. That's not what you're saying. And I think it's important to clarify it. That's exactly it. And I mean, I mean, here's the thing, though. I mean, with some of this information that is being spread, um, there's there's this false balance that is happening. There's this false, like, okay, both sides that, okay, both sides are equal. Both sides should get get the same space. And that's, frankly, that's not true. If something is blatant misinformation, we know we have a lot of data to show that it's absolutely inaccurate there shouldn't be an equal space for those conversations, right? And so that, that is the only thing that we're asking for. We're asking for there to be a policy that simply states that if this is blatant misinformation, it shouldn't, have, it shouldn't be platformed. I got I got one that's really interesting that I want to I want to get at you with because I I trust your opinion on this and it's one thing that that Sanjay Dr Gupta raised with with Rogan when they chatted back in October and he said how why should those who previously had COVID um, not just get one vaccine but I'm hearing from parents I had this conversation with Stephen Del Duca yesterday who wants to mandate the third shot and I'm good with it I got my third shot but I get parents telling me my kid's 17 they've had two shots they've also had COVID. COVID, why would I give them, why do I have to legally, just to go to a restaurant or even to go to school, heaven forbid, get them a third shot? And and Sanjay Gupta raises that. And I, I worry we don't have enough public health messaging on that, that or at least consideration of those parents. I mean, okay, so we don't even have boosters for 12 to 17, right, in Canada? They're coming, I think. I think at some point, right? <laughs> and I just think and the, the option, the choice, the choice to get them will come probably within a few months, I would figure. But I, but I also think the reason why we don't actually have these boosters, whereas the U.S. does, is because we don't really have that data to show that that you know people who are at lower risk for having severe illness who already had two doses and an infection necessarily even need a booster, right? And I think that is one of our ways of like trying to wait and see what the data is showing. 
by not actually approving boosters in this population. So I think that is telling that I think we are actually very evidence-based here in Canada. Um, but I would agree with you, um, and I would agree with this point. I mean, Eric Topol, Dr. Topol, has yes. said something very similar on that front as well. We don't have that data. And I think infections, you know, after especially two doses of vaccines, we have data to show that that is fairly protective. And we don't know how long the protection lasts. That's the question mark that we still need to you know, understand and discern. And we will have that information in the next couple of months. And at that point, if we feel like, okay, you know, um, this immunity is waning, perhaps a booster is necessary, even in, in younger people with two doses and an infection. Sure, let's talk about boosters at that point. But I would agree with you um, on this as well. And I think there's a reason why we're, we're, we're pausing a little on boosters for a specific age populations. I hear that. I like that answer a lot. We, we uh, absolutely. I think that's an important message uh, for someone as trusted as you to get out there. Thank you very much for the time today, Sabina. Love our chats. We'll talk next week. It's my pleasure. What happened when? January 26th in history. And Dave Bradley walks us through the decades and the centuries. Dave, well, it's all yours. We'll start off first with a weird holiday. Today is actually Dental Drill Appreciation Day. <laughs> I don't know why anyone would celebrate this. <laughs> That's dentist would. Well, I, I suppose it makes their job easier. Every time that thing starts up, man, you hear that. Oh, my oh. God. Oh! Right? <laughs> you, oh, Mr. Brady, how's, how's the kids? How's the family? I, yeah, asking PTSD questions. PTSD there. You know what I do, though? I've started bringing my um, my AirPods to the... My ear, what are, my earbuds to the dentist, and I just stick them in, and I'm like, "Tell me when you're done," and I crank up the volume so I can't hear the drill. It's weird because dentists started putting like TVs in, and I don't know what year that was, but I'm like, "What did we do before that?" It's like when you used to go into like a sports bar or a bar, and there'd be like, you just went in there, and there was not a television. That's like a like a like an '80s thing, right? I remember my dad would take me to, out to a restaurant. There'd be no, and the dentist would now. It's they need to entertain you. They got to give kids iPads. <laughs> yeah, they got to give us, uh, you know, television news all the time. They're putting music on for us. I I wonder about that. I are, and then there's the dentists who give your kids candy as they're leaving. Sharp. <laughs> yeah. Pick you your lollipop. Come on. Yeah, they want you back. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. This sounds like a racket. Has anyone had a deep like dental surgery? Of I had a root canal, an emergency Ugh. root canal one night. I had a top tooth. <sighs> Bottom tooth knocked out during a broom ball match. Gord? I have fantastic teeth. It's my only good quality. You're rolling, eh? <laughs> no, no, it isn't. I don't know. That's Gord, what... no. You Physically, are lovely. Yeah. That's one neatly shaved goatee. You're selling yourself <laughs> short. You're a tremendous slouch. Not don't, as good don't as my teeth. That. Dave? Yeah, I've, I've been lucky to avoid it so far. I'm going to touch wood because, you know, heavens knows that I'll I'll be end up in the dentist chair tomorrow. If that's Shiva? No, none. Fingers wow, crossed. Gordon and I are the only one. I'm the only one that's gone under. Actually, for, I had wisdom teeth removed. Does that count? That does count. Oh, but okay, you get the so. gas for that. That's fun. You yes. take a day off work. You're you're all you're you're all <laughs> got a little nitrous oxide kicking around in your system. Good stuff. Yeah, for sure. Also today, uh, a holiday. National clean out your inbox week. Huh. Um, my Gmail account has 901 emails in it right now, but I feel like oh. that's low compared to a lot of people who have like 11,000. See, I clean out my inbox, but I leave it in my deleted folder. So, like, right now I have 27,000 unopened emails in my oh, deleted box. Why not just delete the, the inbox? The because box. I might need those. How many are from oh, Sheba about the show? <laughs> <laughs> how, many are from about your, the host. how many are from your immediate managers here at Chorus? You, like, let's put the lie. <laughs> we did that lie detector. Let's hook you up to the yeah. to the Ben Stiller lie detector. I read all what, those. Yeah, you do. Yeah. Right. I keep them. I have. I have subfolders. I put those in. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
Can't prove anything. Can't prove anything. Nope. No. I'm an innocent bystander. <laughs> On this day, 1905, the world's largest diamond is discovered. 3,106 carats found in South Africa. Shiva, um, you're married. Um, yes. Then again, all three of us are. So no one, you know, our wives didn't buy us, like, diamonds. We just got, like, a wedding band, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Do you know... Do most women just instinctively know? Do you look this stuff up when you see somebody's engagement? I think, uh, do the three of us guys admit we don't know much about this at all? Can we about, admit that, Gord? About what, diamonds in general? Yes. About the, the clarity, the Yeah, the, the three Cs. Yeah. We don't know anything about it. We, we just listen to know. people. Yeah, I think women do know. And a lot of women, which, you know, they, they have their dream ring when they're younger, of the dream ring they want to be proposed with, and they have a picture of it, and they suddenly leave it around for the boyfriend or whatever. I do think <laughs> it is a status. No, it's, it's ridiculous. You pin it up on walls? It's, or, like going or, into the bathroom? I, I, no, I know people who have sent a straight-up email to their boyfriend saying, this is the one I want. So I think it is a status thing. And then there's a whole upgrade, right? You guys know about the upgrade. Uh, oh, yeah. I got an upgrade for my... That I don't get. That I'm actually against the upgrade. You can't change the engagement, right? Oh, they do, you? though. They, oh, yeah. they, oh, they do. These people, yeah. these women, they do that, Dave. They like <laughs> These I, women, they, please. You do. The, men, no. the men are buying it. The men are, the men are involved, too, Brady. Yeah, it sounds very one-sided. Thanks for re- re- remind, reminding <laughs> us. Like, what no if idea. I wanted an upgrade in my wedding band? Would I would I leave a note with my wife and go, this will be about 400 bucks. Here's my invoice. <laughs> no, Dave, it's a thing because you can't afford... Okay, I guess he can't afford the same <laughs> ring when they're getting married, and then ten years later he he has a bigger budget. So they ask for the upgrade. Oh, oh don't tell my, my wife! Gosh, please. this is, oh, this is uh, like yeah, ridiculous. Scrub this segment from the podcast. Yeah. Today. <laughs> None of this ever happened. Oh boy! On this day in 1987, the number one song on the Billboard charts. At this moment, Billy Vera and the Beaters. Now, do you guys know why this was the number one song then? It was in a I movie, wasn't it? it? No, no, no. I know where I heard it first. Okay. I heard it first on when Family Ties. That's it. Yes. That's oh. exactly it. Ding, ding. Yes, I remember the moment. It was with Alex P. Keaton. I remember. That's and right. That's, yeah, it was a great. That's where I learned it. And that's who he eventually married was Tracy Pollan, who was on the oh. show and was his girlfriend at the given yes. time. Yes, and they're still married. They're still married. They're Hollywood marriage. It's awesome. possible. Yeah, yeah. She dated Kevin Bacon for five years. I don't know. Kevin oh. Bacon or Michael J- That's a tough lead. There's, there's your link between Kevin Bacon That's and a- uh, <laughs> Michael J. Fox. The six degrees of Kevin Bacon in actual relationships, not just not just people that were in like Footloose or uh, the air up there, whatever that basketball movie was. Thanks so much for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. Back with a live show tomorrow on 640 Toronto between 530 and 9 in the morning. We appreciate you listening. Please feel free to share this with a friend a pal, a family member, extended or otherwise, extend that olive branch, someone you haven't talked to in a long time. They'd love to hear from you, and they'd love a new podcast the more I think about it. Thanks again for listening.